Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Today on the show, it's so special when we have parents and children together. I love it, love it, love it. You get to hear from a father and a daughter who have just a beautiful way of interacting with each other and also have a very interesting story to share. Celine and Stephen Mather. They are a father and daughter podcast team. Stephen is now an organizational psychologist, but was raised in a high control group, leaving when he was around 30 years old, around the time when Celine was born. He has an interest in how cults operate and how people establish their sense of self after they leave. His dissertation for his master's in organizational psychology explored this question. Celine is a media graduate and for obvious reasons, has an interest in cults, having a particular perspective on them as she grew up in a home where her parents worked to make a life outside the group. Their email address and the link to their podcast will be in the show notes. And it's my pleasure to introduce you to Celine and Stephen Mather. Here they are now. so happy to have the dynamic duo with me today of Stephen and Celine. You are calling in from a distance from me, uh, and it's always exciting to speak to people halfway or almost halfway around the world. And I want you to be able to introduce yourselves, and then we'll get into not only your story, but what you've been doing since, because that's really fascinating what you've created uh, between the two of you. So, uh, Celine, you want to start? Yeah, sure. So I can rattle off my usual intro. I'm getting fairly good at it now. So yeah, we have the Cult Hackers podcast. I'm Celine. I'm a media graduate with an interest in cults, um, as I always say, but also for a bit of context for your listeners, um, my dad was in the Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm sure he'll say. And sort of when I came into existence, he decided he didn't want to raise me in that. So um made the choice to get out and we kind of talk about all of that kind of stuff and my sort of tertiary relationship to the cool world. <laughs> yeah. And and I think having a glimpse into what you were saved from, you know, as you get older and you become maybe even closer to the age that your father was when he was thinking about leaving. Those are these moments that really make quite an impact where you think how different your life would have been if other decisions had been made or no decision had been made, actually. So thank you, Celine. Nice to be able to get to know you today. I look forward to hearing more about your insights, uh, tertiary or otherwise. Okay, Stephen, can you introduce yourself, please? My name is Stephen Mather. As Celine said, I was raised as a, as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. I left when I was about 30. And as Celine said, really, it was it was mainly because of her that I left. I'd had doubts for for many years, even when I got baptized, Jehovah's Witnesses practice. They claim not to practice infant baptism, although they seem to be getting younger and younger when they're baptizing. So I was baptized about 16, still with doubts though, but tried to push them down as everything I knew, of course. It was my friend's family. I was third generation Jehovah's Witness. So extended family, all 
witnesses at the time. So yeah, it was very, very difficult to leave. So I carried on, got married to another Jehovah's Witness. We got married, we had Celine. And at that point, I started to think to myself, you know, what do I actually teach this baby in my arms? You know, what do I tell her about the future and what's true and what's right and wrong and how do I know this stuff? That really crystallized my need to get to grips with these doubts that I'd had. And honestly, Rachel, I really hoped that I would find that it was the truth. So I I decided that I would do some personal study. Jehovah's Witnesses have this phrase, make the truth your own. And that is a code for doing lots of study to make sure you know you're in the truth. But of course, you're not supposed to study anything other than Jehovah's Witness literature. So that always bothered me. So my first thought was, right, I'm going to read and read and read, try to understand everything I can. And hopefully that will show me that it is the truth. And I can put all my worries at at rest and teach Celine and all of that. And of course, I I very quickly realised that my worst fears were true. It wasn't the truth. You know, it's a belief system and I didn't believe it. So yeah, that's the sort of potted history of, of, of how I came to leave. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's an interesting phrase. I've never thought about that belief system. And then what do you do if you no longer believe? Uh, and that, because it's fundamental to it, right? It's a belief and that's at its core. It's such a fascinating phrase to make the truth your own. There are many different cultic groups that have a variation of that. And, you know, L. Ron Hubbard has the, you know, if it's true for you, it's true. And I actually remember uh, Stephen Colbert, the talk show host and comedian, when he talked about truthiness, it was like a truth adjacent, you know? And so I think there's been a lot of talk about truth and what is real, what is fake, what is true. Um, But making something true, I think, means also that it needs to make sense in some way. And if the equation's not coming together, then I'm sure it's very uncomfortable. It's also very disappointing, especially if you're wanting it to be the truth. And, you, and A plus B just doesn't quite equal C, and you're not sure what to do next. And a lot of people in those moments just hope that if they open their heart to this, somehow it will at some point make sense. But others remain at odds, and that's sometimes when they make the changes that you made. And applying logic, you know, doesn't really fit here either, and it creates I know a lot of confusion, but frustration. And so I'm wondering for you, Stephen, when things weren't coming together at first, were you thinking that you needed to pray more or believe more or just let it wash over you in some way? Yeah, absolutely. A good illustration of this is I've talked about this on on our podcast, but I remember on my baptism day. So I was 16 years old, young man, still a minor, obviously technically but we, uh, I was read, getting ready to go to the, um, what we used to call the assemblies, um, which were like sort of conventions, local Jehovah's Witnesses would all get together and have a, a, a couple of days in an assembly hall or something. And that's where we did the baptisms. So I was getting baptised at a place not far from here. Um, my my family had actually gone in the car and I was going on the coach. There was a coach that was set up. So I was on my own in the house um, waiting before I was going to go for the coach. And I'd 
already gone through the questions as you do as Jehovah's Witness to see whether you qualify for baptism and I'd made my decision I was getting baptised. It's not something you do spontaneously. You have to be approved, if you like. So I'd gone through that process, but I still had these doubts. And I remember sitting on the sofa with my little bag, as Jehovah's Witnesses always have a little bag, with my suit on, waiting for this coach, thinking to myself, make myself believe it. And I remember praying to Jehovah begging him to make me make me believe it 100%. Please, Jehovah, make me believe it. I really want to believe it. I've got these doubts, but I really want to believe it. So yeah, absolutely. It was about praying and praying and begging the God of the universe to make me see it as true. Um, but I just, I couldn't. And so I always say, you know, if Jehovah is real, then he doesn't want me because I begged him <laughs> to make me believe it. And he didn't show up for me. I got baptized and I I had these phases over the years and I carried on. I reached out for privileges, as they call it, which means doing extra work in the organization. I was a full-time minister, so I spent 90 hours a month knocking on doors. I was very, very dedicated, but I had these doubts all the time. But yeah, the onus, of course, in courts, as, as you described, is on you personally. Um, it's got to be my fault. You know, if I don't have 100% faith, it's me that's a problem. Therefore, I need to do more studying. I need to do more reading. I need to read the Watchtower. I need to study it. I need to pray more. I need to do more work. So that's the other thing. You know, engross yourself in the the preaching work because that's the best protection you've got from these doubts. So yeah, that's um, that's what. And, and it was a very active process. I was really trying to make myself believe it to be the truth. Right. So in keeping with this whole idea, I think as you're talking about having this dissonance, this cognitive dissonance, which is very uncomfortable. Especially if the end result of feeling that is that you look inward and you have to be trying harder somehow and praying, uh, as opposed to maybe being able to step back and think maybe this this feels dissonant because it, it doesn't make sense and it doesn't quite work. And there are a lot of people just making it work uh, to whatever degree they can, or at least hoping that it one day will be, uh, will be able to work for them and their psyche, I think too. It's hard because you can be on edge and you can also really be putting yourself down, um, which I think is sort of built into the system anyway. You know, you're used to needing to look inward and be self-critical and this just adds to it. I'm sure that's a very difficult time. It was agonizing I would say uh, my experience in the group was not, uh, I, I often say, you know, it wasn't as bad as some people's. So there's some really awful experiences of abuse in various forms. Um, my The abuse I had, you know, we can call it spiritual abuse, I guess. it. I, I do believe in, um, from my sort of psychology background, I think it's interesting to see how individual differences play a part in the experience of of how cults interact especially for people like me who are raised in in a group so for me i was a very oversensitive child i worried about everything i was quite an anxious child i always wanted to please i always wanted to be good you know that affects the way you interact with the group so it, it really meant that i had to believe it and i had to do things with honesty and integrity i think there are some members of certainly jehovah's witnesses who 
you know, probably don't believe a lot of it. They think that it's, you know, well, you know, I think it's the truth generally, but, you know, there's things we don't know and there's things we get wrong, but it, we think it's Jehovah's organization anyway. And so we just go along with it. And a lot of people are like that, surprisingly so. I think that's how they get rid of the dissonance. That's how they, they work with that cognitive dissonance. For me, I had to know whether it was actually true or not. And like, if, if we're saying that Armageddon is coming and going to destroy all the bad people, and by bad people, we mean anybody that's not a Jehovah's Witness. If we're saying that, we need to be sure about that, I think. It's not something you want to get wrong, is it? You know? <laughs> right. And they got it wrong many times. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So Jehovah's Witnesses are quite interesting when it comes to their history. They'll tell you a little bit so that it's not a surprise when you hear it from other sources. So I did know about some of the claims around... 1914 and 1925 and 1975 even I was alive at that time as well but it, it is given sort of I don't know spun in a way that well yeah, it's nothing to worry about Jesus disciples kept asking when is it going to happen and you know that's normal for people to get things like that wrong we've had a, a guest mentioned before the phrase the chariots on the move which I still love I think it's great to mean like if you question something or say oh that's not what we used to say or that's changed someone will just sort of thought stopping technique is to say the chariot's on the move and that just means things have changed don't think about it too much <laughs> let it move on <laughs> wow that's quite clever actually it's very clever there's a, there's a whole lexicon of this stuff though the language i know you're you know very interested in in the way that language is used and and that is very very interesting yeah the chariot is on the move is is taken from a a verse somewhere in the bible i can't i can't remember exactly where it is but the idea is that god's organization is like a chariot and it's always moving forward therefore it, we need to move forward with it otherwise you know we're going to get left behind and basically that means, as Celine said, you've got to just accept whatever the latest teaching is about. Whatever the new light is. New light is another one, yeah. The light is increasing, the light is getting brighter, which means that we are understanding more as time goes on. And so this is another way of, of rationalising. Really sim a simple concept, which is if you say the end of the world is coming a week next Tuesday and you get it wrong... That surely has to damage your credibility, doesn't it? <laughs> One would think, yes. One would think so. Uh -huh. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, and there are a lot of groups too that have predicted a lot of things in in a very bold manner, and found a way to use the fact that it didn't happen for the benefit of the group, which is again quite manipulative and clever. And I don't mean clever here as a compliment in the least bit. You know, because I think it really there should have been honesty in that and letting people know, oh, sorry, we made a mistake because, you know, you can actually respect people a lot more when they say, oh, my bad, then, oh, no, we meant and they meant this and it's because of that. And you're like, really? Are you seven? You know, like you, that's what it feels like. And you just don't want to have to see a religious leader in that way, just sort of trying to get out of something, but rather saying, well, I guess we were wrong and, and that it's okay to be wrong. I mean, I think it's a wonderful example that adults can set for children or followers. And if they say, you know, yeah, we were wrong. But I know that, you know, in some cultic groups, it's used as a way to bring in more members when the end of the world is coming or to bring in more donations. And the cruelty of it, from what I can see, is that there are some people who really do truly believe that the people they know who are not 
Jehovah's Witnesses or not fill in the blank name of the group they're in are going to perish. And, you know, don't do that to people. That's really not okay. Um, it's quite a, an emotional roller coaster, which you probably were on quite a bit, Stephen. I was born in 1967. So I was a young man, young boy, really, when the 1975 came along. Interestingly, my parents didn't go along with that it was a it was a bit of an interpretation it was a bit of a kite flying there but the organization allowed that and actually propagated it to some degree and it did create a an urgency one of the things we know in organizations that if you want if you want to do make something happen create the sense of urgency and so of course that did that but by the time i was kind of a bit more conscious of what was going on the doctrine was very very clear it was that um, the end was going to come before the generation that saw 1914, which they interpret as the start of the troubles, if you like, of the end of the Gentile times. So they said that the end would come before the generation that saw 1914 passed away. So this is a, an interpretation of Jesus's um words to his disciples when they said tell us when will all these things occur when jesus was talking about the signs of the last days of the jewish system of things um and the destruction of jerusalem they said when's this going to happen and he gave them all these prophecies like wars and pestilence and and so and so on and they said well when will all these things be and he he said um this generation will by no means by no means pass away until all these things occur so jehovah's witnesses do this a lot um with their bible interpretation they take that scripture that was just a conversation between if we if we accept the the historicity of it it was it was a conversation between jesus and his disciples but they take it to mean that it also had a greater fulfillment in our day so that statement was translated as meaning that anybody who was alive in 1914 would still be alive to see the end would see armageddon so when i was growing up those people were in their sort of late 60s, 70s, and then 80s, and then older. And it started to become obvious that that generation was passing away, that they were dying. And I think that was one of the big problems I had. It was it was clear that that was no longer tenable, that position. That, And yet I'd been telling people that, knocking on people's doors, doing Bible studies with people, saying that this scripture shows that the end of the the, the world, the end of this wicked system, Armageddon is coming um, within this generation. They're getting very old now, and, and so it's going to happen any day soon. So it made a liar out of me, and it also... And when Celine came along, of course, it would it would mean that I would have to tell her the same lie. And I think that was that was the big real discomfort. It was trying to come to terms with, with all of that. My goodness. Yeah, it shouldn't be that... When you are involved in a belief system, you're needing to so consistently, it sounds, uh, wrestle with your conscience. It should be aligned with sort of a conscientiousness, not opposed to it, which is interesting. I'm thinking also now, I mean, I've, I'm keeping in mind, Celine, the fact that, you know, your father was able to do something to really protect you from this. And I want to be able to bring you into the conversation. And I'm wondering, though, before we, do that just for you, Stephen, to be able to talk a little bit about some of the memories you have, some of the experiences you have that really stand out because we all have them. And it can also be good experiences. It doesn't have to be all bad. I mean, I hope for you, there are some good ones too, because you spent quite some time there. So what stands out that really made an impression on you from good to bad? 
That's a really, really good question. So I think I think some of the things that I value of my time as a as one of Jehovah's Witnesses was that it, it gave me the opportunity to to do things that I now do for a living in a way. So I, I they taught me how to speak in front of people. And um, so I'm now, I, I work in organizations um, as an organizational psychologist, but most of my work is is training adults in how to be leaders and managers within the corporate world. So that's my day job. And I still draw upon the training I got as a child, really, learning how to, they call it a speech council slip. So you have this like form where a male member of the congregation called the school overseer would listen to your talk and then give you some feedback afterwards now some people really hated that so for some that would be one of the things they really hated for me i really found benefit in that and i learned how to do public speaking and i still use some of those ideas today in my courses on how to do public speaking i find that they were quite useful and i enjoyed that i actually enjoyed doing all of that and then as i got older i was made um that the, the overseer who was the person giving the counsel and giving the advice and i really loved doing that it was great we had a had a great rapport with the with the people doing the the talk so i personally enjoyed that so that's that's a positive i felt i learned from that and i still use those skills today i mean there's lots of funny experiences funny to me anyway i mean knocking on people's doors in the middle of the day or in the evening or whatever out of the blue it's a kind of bizarre thing to be doing you know knocking on somebody's door saying you know we're here to talk about god's kingdom or um trying to strike a conversation about religion in some sort of tortured way have you ever wondered why god permits wickedness you know and the person there is trying to watch the football or they're um they're doing doing the housework or they and it is a bizarre thing to do so obviously there's lots of strange conversations you have and normally the people that would give you time would themselves be actually quite odd people because who else is who else are you going to talk to so you know it was quite there was quite some amusing experiences just in the sorts of people that you meet and the sorts of conversations you would have now and again if i get with another ex-jehovah's witness we we kind of reminisce about oh do you remember that call we used to have that just kept talking about a washing machine all the time. Um, that was the sort of thing we just do. So that was quite funny. But of course, yeah, there was a lots of, and I think that baptism is one of the things that sticks out for me, that moment of really trying to, to make myself believe it. I remember sitting in the Kingdom Hall when I was about to get married. Um, I'd moved towns to another town where my wife lived, soon to be my wife, and I was sat in that kingdom hall there. I remember that kingdom hall. We actually got married in that hall. But I do remember sitting on the front row there with tears in my eyes thinking, I don't believe it. You know, I, I don't believe this, but I have to carry on. Um, and, and that's a regret, I suppose, in some respects. Although if it hadn't have been for sticking with it, marrying Sarah, my wife, who is now out as well, by the way, you know, and we're still together. It, if it wasn't for that, obviously, Celine would have come along. So I, I have to be grateful for that as well, I suppose. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, Celine is the bonus. Uh, what I'm wondering about, and, and I want to come back to the door-to-door. I mean, that's how a lot of people first interact with Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I, I, I do want to make sure we talk about that. I've worked with many, many people and still do now work with people who uh, were raised in Jehovah's Witnesses and also some who are partners to those who were in Jehovah's Witnesses and they themselves were not and they 
are trying to get some understanding about why it is that their spouse or their partner feels very strongly about certain things or holds themselves up to this sort of superhuman standard and perfection, you know, and, um, and trying to understand also where some of the fears come from for a lot of kids raised with those visuals and the worries and fears of what could happen in the world um, and what's going to happen to the world and trying to find your place in the world too, because there is a sense of superiority, but also really being uh, critical of the self. So it's like you're high and you're low. and But I think it's hard to find that place in between of just being, of just being okay with being okay. And and so I, I think just finding that space sometimes is hard, which is true for most people coming out of situations where they feel elevated and pushed down and elevated and pushed down. It's confusing and also a roller coaster. But there are a lot of people who have said to me, I don't know if I could have left for myself, but I left for my child. I had the strength to do this for the person I loved, for the person I've suddenly felt protective towards in a way that I hadn't towards anyone or in a way that I didn't towards myself. And it is true that we can sometimes act on other people's behalf in a way that like if if someone's giving my kids a hard time, watch out. I, I The things that will come out of my mouth I'll even be looking at myself like, who is this? Who's saying these things? Because I've never said them before on my own behalf. So when you started to have that, when you started to wrestle in this way, how old was Celine? So she was a baby, really. Um, as I said, I'd always had the doubts, but it was really when she was in my arms as a, as a baby. We, we took her to the Kingdom Hall, which Jehovah's Witnesses do. You know, there's no leaving the child babysitters or anything like that we all bring your children to the hall and um sit for two hours um listening to talks and so on and you have to manage the child we did that and um so it was it was it was then really she was literally a, a baby there was a period of obviously i said i was going to step back from my duties as as a jehovah's witness i wasn't gonna straight away say i wasn't anymore i was just gonna step back and um not sort of take part in anything and in fact that was in a way my that would have been my position if ongoing if it hadn't been for celine and even even until really recently i've been having a recurring dream and i had this dream for years and years and years where long after i'd left i would i would basically try to find the most the least active way to be a jehovah's witness so how can you do it without preaching without trying to convert anybody else just visit people on magazine calls that you might have had years ago and uh, that can get you some hours in because you have to report your hours on the, the the ministry so you report how many hours you spent and so i could do that i'm not trying to convert anybody else and just do the minimum and i suppose that that would have made me a, a physically in mentally out as as we call it a pima so i said i was essentially i was going to do that although i didn't call it that and i did that for a year or so and then i I decided that i knew it wasn't the truth um and i told sarah about it my wife and she didn't want to make her decision based upon me so she carried on going for a year and i carried on helping i would come to the hall sometimes and then I, i was there to drop them off and so on so i i carried on helping but so yeah, as that was happening, Celine will probably be able to tell you better, but she was a young, she was starting to be conscious and aware of of the hall and the people there and so on. But but she was never sort of embedded in it like like I was. 
Right. So again, just from my perspective, not having been in it, but working with people who have been, who say as adults, they've had to learn the language of emotion and they've had to learn how to regulate their emotions because they just sort of learned to not have them. And if they were going through periods of anxiety or depression to to be able to be accepting of the self in those moments and not see it as sinful and not see it as a failing and, you know, just shifting how you see yourself and and shifting, I think, the ability to be self-accepting. I mean, the, you know, in these ways, Celine, you, you, your father helped you dodge a bullet because you... You can. You grew up, I think, with being able to say, "This is what I want. And this is how I feel," and you can say no, and you can ask a question. And so much of it, so much of your life has been able to be different. So I want to shift over to you now to see about you what what you want to be able to share with us about what you remember, even though I know that you know you, you were young when a transition was made, but just what you know that you were raised with very purposely, I think, to provide you with something that your father was not able to have. Yeah. So um, like dad said, I think I do have memories of the hall a little bit, like going to them. And I do remember dad coming to pick us up in the car. Um, And I kind of remember sitting at the back sort of bit where like you go in sort of um, sit if you're not if you're not too in the popular group anymore you sit at the back (laughs) um so I kind of remember that it's interesting because yeah we obviously mum kind of came to her own decision to stop going and yeah at that point obviously I stopped going as well we've discussed before as well how I actually I remember some of my early memories is that I really wanted us to go back because our family was obviously there and all and all the when you go it's like everybody comes over to you because they as I know now know the phrase is love bombing but obviously as a child everyone comes over and they're like oh do you remember me and like oh you've grown so much because I would sometimes go if I'd been babysat by people that were still witnesses so I'd go and then I guess see the community and then kind of think oh it'd be good if we if we were still here with all these people that are our family, all these people that we know, they they seem to be really nice, <laughs> you know, because you don't understand as a child. Um, obviously now I'm like, amazing, thank goodness. But, you know, at the time, you don't understand all of the decisions. It's not something that I think I'm great. I'm grateful it wasn't a sit down conversation explaining all of like the detail of that as a child. I think, like you said, one of the bullets I was saved is not having that emotional <laughs> sort of damaged so I'm grateful but yeah I remember so dad prayed because he wanted to believe I prayed because I wanted mum and dad to believe so that we could go (laughs) which obviously I'm grateful did not go anywhere but um (laughs) yeah at the time yeah I remember yeah praying for mum and dad to believe so we could go back to the meetings so it is completely age appropriate that you enjoyed the trappings of it and the attention that you do get when you're at that developmental stage because you do change quite a bit until the next time people see you if there's been any delay of time and so people are going to make a fuss and especially if that's part of the culture feels very good and no you're not going to understand what's what's behind it potentially even though i'm sure there are some people who are genuine 
and others who may have just done it pro forma because that was what you did. But either way, it feels good. And there are a lot of people who will stay in things for much longer because in those moments, it just feels good. And they're, I think, worried that it's not going to exist outside in the same way. Uh, It's hard to say goodbye to those things. But really, it is superficial. It is surface. And Ultimately, that's not really what matters. It becomes more about the belief, et cetera. But I'm actually glad that you had those positive experiences when you were young because they're confidence building too. Oh, people are excited to see me and to know me. Okay, so go ahead. Yeah, I think that was one of those things. And um, we only kind of discussed this recently actually on another podcast, but I said to that sort of the, I remember because I I had one of the, like my Bible story books, you know, there's like the children's version, the yellow A5 kind of size book with all the delightful pictures in it. Um, um, I had one of those and I remember I used to take that to school as well and like show the kids at school, like, isn't this great? I mean, mortifying now, but, um, you know, I thought I was doing a, a good thing and I could tell like relatives that were still in like oh look I did this I brought my bible book and they would say oh that's really good well done you know so again you're a child getting that affirmation it's like you quite quickly realize where you're going to get affirmation you're like oh god do that again so you know you go do that again when I was younger I was kind of in that kind of space of like yeah kind of wanting us to go because I wanted to be involved in the group so the very simple psychology of it, just wanting to be involved in the group. There's a reason it works, obviously. But yeah, I think I remember we had like my first ever birthday party because Jehovah's Witnesses obviously don't celebrate birthdays or Christmas or any of that. But we celebrated my first birthday when I was four, didn't we? Because we went to Disneyland Paris. (laughs) So it feels like we had a secret birthday because we went away. We literally left the country to have a secret birthday. (laughs) But um, I guess things like that over time, you start realizing. So, and then when I had my first like birthday party at seven, I was like, oh, this is amazing and great. And then you kind of realize, oh, I wouldn't be able to do that if I was in that group. And this is actually quite nice. And these people are nice. And I like being involved with these people. So, I guess, yeah, starting to, as much as I really wanted to be in that group at that point, it kind of, you're still a child. So it's e- it's easier to break away, isn't it? When you get at age seven, <laughs> you know, you get to have these really good experiences, really good connections with people. So I remember that being a very exciting thing. I guess it was probably very exciting for mum and dad as well, because you didn't get to have birthdays and have parties. So Yeah, that, that's true. I, I I think as well, as for, for Celine, she was going every now and again, to a kingdom hall and and that there's a, a novelty value there you know it's like oh that's not but she wasn't um sort of embedded in it like like you are if you're literally you get to up. go so home you, yeah. yeah exactly you eat drink and sleep it when you're being raised in it so it's got a slightly different feel to it of course so i guess you know that's something you you don't realize i was excited to see the other kids that were there that i'd only see when i was at the hall and things like that so because um like certain people that did meetings at their homes had like a pool table and that was amazing I was like I can't wait to go to the meeting so I can play pool afterwards you know (laughs) so it's it's a very different kind of experience though I do remember how long those meetings went on for and because I guess I didn't have the same like value put on it so from dad's point of view he was you know he totally invested in like if I need to pay attention because this is about saving lives and like doing the right thing so that I'm in the right I'm doing the right thing 
you know, but I guess, like you said, you were being raised from a very young age that God was ever watching. <laughs> Whereas for me, I was just, I wasn't being raised in that all the time. So when I was then put in a really boring, like monotone beating voice, man drooling on, <laughs> I was just desperate to look at the clock, um, which is directly behind you. So everyone sees when you look at the clock and you see the disapproval as you look behind you <laughs> to check the time. But um, so, yes, yeah, so that's what I mean when I say it's like a tertiary upbringing sort of thing so it's like I was aware of it but I wasn't being raised in it right and I think about uh the release of cortisol which you know happens when you think you're being watched or you're going to be evaluated or you're you know you're young and needing to sit through many hours of something and be good and God is watching the you know it releases these chemicals in your system where you know it's sometimes hard to rest you got the luxury of being able to space out and do your thing imagine go into your head i mean i it's it's different well i suppose i mean i grew up going to synagogue and sometimes the services on saturday mornings were four, four hours long and i remember i got good at counting the ceiling tiles and cuz i was sort of sort of falling asleep and my head was back and then and then i would count by twos and then i would count diagonally you have to find things to do but i i do think just not having that pressure of a watchful eye over you in that way where it was potentially punitive, I'm sure, you know, is a, is a big difference from your father's experience. I mean, what was it like for you, Stephen? Do you remember just needing to sit through things and having a hard time? I think this is a really important point, actually, Rachel, that you've raised there. So the name Jehovah's Witnesses tells you more than you think it means i think <laughs> strange strange form of words there but um i think most people just it's just a label but actually it's not it's um it's a description so a jehovah's witness or one of jehovah's witnesses that witnesses is doing a lot of work and the idea is that you are there as a um you're being looked at, you're being watched by Satan's world, by Satan himself, and by Jehovah. You are there as an example to the world. Therefore, everything is very performative. You are very much, I felt this anyway, I guess other people might have a different um, take on it, and current Jehovah's Witnesses would deny this, but this is my experience. I felt that I always had to, to be good. I had to perform, whether that was at the hall, listening to um, an old man go on for an hour about something that I didn't understand, or whether it was at school, where my behaviour at school was very much tied to being a witness. So one year, I got a slightly bad report, which was just silly behaviour. I was a you know, I think I was 11 years old, you know, so I was, I was messing about in class sometimes telling jokes that weren't very funny. Um, but you know, what children do trying to expand their, I suppose who they are. And, um, I got a slightly bad report, you know, Stephen's silly behavior, X, Y, Z. But one of the things that was thrown at me as a, you know, why this was bad was because as one of Jehovah's witnesses, you know, what if, what if we knocked on their door next week and they say, well, I've got one of um, I've got one of Jehovah's Witnesses in my class, and they're really badly behaved. That doesn't give a good witness. So, giving a good witness was very, very important. So, you're always being judged in a way. It's the old panopticon thing. You know, you are you are kind of wherever you are, you're being watched. But that's not just by God; it's also by the world. And you don't want to do anything that is going to put anybody off. 
Because the other thing that kicks in there, Rachel, is something called blood guilt. So I was raised to with this this idea called blood guilt, which again is is a phrase in the Bible, or at least the version New World Translation. And it was a part of the Jewish law, which was if you accidentally caused the death of somebody else, you were blood guilty, either because you did something or you you were negligent, um, you know, could be that they had an accident with one of your pieces of equipment or something, you would be blood guilty for this. So they extended this principle to if you are a bad witness, if you do something that gives a bad witness, you are then blood guilty. That's a heck of a weight for a child to to bear. And for a sensitive child like me, I would put that on my shoulders. And so I was terrified of being blood guilty because I'd done something or said something so that i think that is really important to remember jehovah's witnesses are a witness um to the world and so it's not just god that's watching it's everybody else as well and anything that you do that gives a bad witness could potentially make you blood guilty wow what is it like for you celine to hear your father talk this way about what the pressure that he was under well the thing is me and my dad are very similar so um that's another reason as to my immense gratitude that I wasn't raised in the group because, as we said, there is a difference in, difference in people and how they react to things, obviously. Um, I'm a very sort of conscientious person. I worry about other people a lot and how my actions affect other people anyway. So layering on top the blood guilt kind of thing is just perfect storm for the, the way that our brains work um you know people that worry about things and turn things over on their head afterwards like i i i know that i i know that i'd go home and think about things and think should i've said this should i've said it differently have i put them off um and i know that you know there's other people we've spoken to that have brought up the um, blood guilt as being something they'd you know, that would keep them up at night and they would worry about or even looking at their hands and thinking, like imagining blood on their hands. Because I think that was in a, that was in a talk, wasn't it? Everyone told to look at their hands and, and consider if they're blood guilty. So it's obviously deeply upsetting because obviously hearing that, you know, that's how he was growing up is awful. But also I, I know that it's another reason for me to be grateful because I, I would have I think I would have felt the same level of anxiety and I would have took it on really personally. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And, you know, I'm reminded of a family I worked with years ago, probably about 10 years ago now. And the son is probably similar in age to you, Celine, at the time. He was young when this happened and it really um, made this impression on him. It was quite traumatizing. His father and mother divorced because the father became a Jehovah's Witness. It was here in California. He then married a woman. They started having many, many children. Uh, the woman was also a Jehovah's Witness. And so my client mom uh, was not, she married someone who was not, they had a, a young daughter who was three. His father still had custody or partial custody of him. And so when he would go to spend time over at his father's house, the father would spend a lot of time trying to convince him that his mother was, you know, this evil person who 
who wasn't believing the right ways and 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 it would grill him were you involved in a party um you know what happened at christmas time was there a tree was there a present was there a candle was anything you know he had to answer all these questions the worst part came though when i don't know if it was just his particular leader within his group and the where he went basically came up with this edict where they said they were encouraging the Jehovah's Witness parent, if there was a custodial thing with another parent who wasn't, to encourage that child to accuse the non-Jehovah's Witness parent of abuse and to report it so that the Jehovah's Witness parent could gain full custody and then raise them the right way. He was young. He wanted approval by his father. He didn't know what the ramifications would be. In fact, his father said, it's fine. Don't worry. You know, this, but this is what God wants. So he did it. And then he's in this home when the caseworkers come and they see, he sees his three-year-old half-sister being picked up by someone she does not know and taken out the front door. And that's when he said, he just blurted out, none of it is true. My father told me I needed to say it. He said, that's what God wanted. And I thought, you know, this is very interesting because I'm sure that I haven't heard about that happening a lot. So I don't think that came from the top leadership. But I think what happens is when you have these um, religious groups where no one is overseeing what they're doing, then it's a free-for-all, I think. Like there is no governing body overseeing what each individual place was doing too. And so he still feels guilty. He still, you know, has a hard time with it. And he's very angry with his father and he's angry at the father's pastor. And I mean, it, it was such a mess. But I see in that woven in that is this entitlement, like it's going to be okay because it's bringing you, you know, to the right place and you're going to be leading your life in the right way. And this is what God wants. And, you know, kids don't know to argue with it, um, even in their heart, you know. It's fascinating, really, how people interact with these beliefs. Um, We've touched on it, but human beings have to make sense of what is put before them. So cults and cultic groups have various uh, as as we know it's we can kind of think about them on a on a dimension rather than a single entity so they are they have differences and jehovah's witnesses you're not living off on a compound somewhere where the leaders have complete control over every aspect of your life directly. It's done through, as I mentioned before, this feeling that you're you're there as a witness to to everybody. And um, so all these rules, if you like, are embedded internally as opposed to being physically in a space where somebody's driving this behavior. But that means that people's own way of making sense of what they're receiving from the platform and what they're reading and the videos and so on, they have to make sense of it themselves. And so they interpret it to some degree. And that's where I think some of these um, more extreme, I mean, it's extreme enough, but even the more extreme examples like you have mentioned, that falls out of that because people are making sense of it. So they're saying, well, you know, if if this child's life is on the line here, that if they don't become a Jehovah's Witness, they're going to die at Armageddon. I, I need to do anything really to, to save them from this fate. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And um, if you couple that with concepts like spiritual warfare, which is you can lie sometimes if it's not really a lie, if the person you're lying to doesn't need to know or doesn't have the right to know the information. Therefore, you can tell untruths and it's okay if the end justifies the means and the end has got to justify the means if the person's going to die on again. So you have all these sort of twisted logic that 
comes from the fact that people are trying to make sense of pretty senseless ideas. So for some of them, they'll go in that direction. For others, I think a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses have very strange ways of coping with, like I said, if you really believe, which I did believe that Armageddon was coming, but if I really believe that's coming very, very soon, that all my school friends, all the people I see down at the shopping mall, all the all the people I work with, all of those people are going to die soon at Armageddon, then I should be not just going out on a Saturday morning or a Sunday afternoon knocking on doors. I should be out there all the time. I should not be shutting up about it, should I? I should actually be making an absolute nuisance of myself. But very few witnesses do that. They they do a certain amount. They probably do eight or 10 hours a month, um, and that's considered okay. How do you get to that point? Well, I think, again, this is a way of just making sense of the information you're being given and finding a way to live and cope with this cognitive dissonance. So, yeah, that's that's how everybody sort of has different ways of coping with it. I want to be able to talk about the the people who come door to door also because there are people who will say, you know, that happened to me and I wasn't quite sure how to help or how to interact. And is there something I could try to do or say that might make an impact? I don't want to jump in with that before, if there are other things that you wanted to make mention, because we could talk about that for a long time. Um, So was there something else, Celine or Stephen, that you wanted to make sure to mention before we shifted over to that? I guess, uh, and, and it's something that comes up a lot, and it's it's a particular interest of mine is is identity and self, and of course that that is something that uh, I think most of us struggle with when we leave um, a high control group that is very much tied into our story that we tell about ourselves. So yeah, I mean that's you know we could talk about that for like three or four episodes and still not get anywhere near the um, the, the truth of it. But yeah, that is of course a really difficult experience. Okay, I think it would be good if we end talking about that and then we can continue another time. So then I'll keep this door-to-door part short. So that is where a lot of people will meet Jehovah's Witnesses and also in parks and other places where they have their poster board and, you know, and I have a local Jehovah's Witness representative who comes to my door quite a bit with someone else sometimes. And I have a symbol on my door, a mezuzah, a Jewish symbol. And so I'm targeted by many groups. What I find is that there are often two people, one seems very sure, another not as much. And I sometimes engage a conversation, sometimes not. But there is this sort of sense of duty, but also some discomfort and a lot of emotions. And as a as a therapist, of course, I'm looking in people's eyes. I'm trying to see how they're feeling. What do you suggest for both of you from your different perspectives and different ages? Because there are going to be people there who are older and younger. Um, what is a good way to respond if you feel like you want to make an impression of some sort? Because you just have a, a small amount of time. And also knowing during COVID, my door-to-door guy got a hold of my um, cell phone number, don't know how, and started uh, leaving me messages with tracks that I needed to check out and then would call the week later to see if I had if I had read them and what I thought of them and if I wanted to discuss them. So he gave me homework to do, which I never asked for, and then asked me 
I mean, it was like never ending. And um, I had to block him. It was, and it was all very enthusiastic and happy to be talking. And I thought, dude, what, who are you? Please leave me alone. But I, I think he really did want to save me. So he had that enthusiasm, you know? So what is the best way for people to respond in those moments if there is a best way? So Selena, I want to start with you. I think um, it's it's tricky because I've only recently, I guess, opened up to uh, sort of talking about it. So obviously we're doing the podcast. It's just three years now we've been doing our podcast. So before that, I kind of was very shy of talking about any of this stuff because dad and mum successfully faded from the organization which meant we kind of were able to have good relationships with people that were still in and so I was afraid to talk about any of that stuff so when people came to the door if dad started um, asking questions to them and like saying have you considered this have you thought about this I'm like alarm bells or panic because I'm thinking oh that might get back to them and then that might put like a, a sort of something against us and people might stop talking to us and that might put us into trouble. And that was a frightening thing. So it's only recently that we started talking. So I always used to hide from the door as well. If they would knock, I would hide. <laughs> I didn't want to engage, um, which I think a lot of people do, even if they've never had anything to do with it, they just hide. <laughs> Dad's like, yeah, of course, I've seen the shadows of <laughs> people behind the door. Yeah. So, but now I guess, um, if someone does come to the door, I might try and ask some questions that aren't obviously directly saying what you believe isn't true, but just ask some questions that might that someone could take away and think about afterwards and that might crack open the distance door a little bit. Because you're not really going to change. A, a, a friend said to me recently, um, and I think she's probably right, is that people don't change their mind in front of you. They go home and they think about it. So I, I guess instead of going too super hard, I'm going to try with the a few little questions that maybe they can take home with them. So I guess these questions are like ways to plant some seeds and see if they germinate on their own or if they connect with the seeds that are there have already been planted in that person. Yeah, because they probably do. Like we've said, so many people have these I mean, everyone's got like their analogy of, you know, is it a bag that was ripping or a glass that's breaking? You know, the, the things that they were questioning that eventually gets to a point that, yeah, it was too much and you leave. Maybe I can add another little bit of something for somebody. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So to just be, if you're going to speak with them at all, but just to add, to have some um, potentially eye-opening questions. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. And then Stephen. Yeah. I think the, the first thing I would say is if, if you've got the time, they've got the time. So they, I mentioned this before about counting time. I have been gone a long time now, but there's no, um, there's no evidence that this has changed. Essentially, um, most Jehovah's Witnesses don't really like knocking on doors and doing the ministry work. It's embarrassing and you don't know what you're going to find when you knock on somebody's door it's not something that comes naturally to most jehovah's witnesses so that's the first thing to remember so they're not really that comfortable they'd put on a show of being like smiley and all of that they're probably quite nervous about knocking on somebody's door but they also it has to be done because that's part of their commitment and worship so they have to do this this witnessing work and the door to door is is a big part of that so any time they get to talk to somebody, literally just have a conversation, it's great for you as a witness because 
your time time's ticking by you know before you know it you've got half an hour in or an hour in even on a door this is the language so we used to say i got stuck on a door um stuck talking to this person for an hour that's great because you know you you're in you're in a an environment there where you can relax a bit and talk to somebody who actually wants to talk to you. So if you want to engage with Jehovah's Witnesses, generally speaking, they're up for it and they will happily stand there. Or if you invite them in, although obviously you have to be careful, they will talk to you. How then to engage with them? I think it is so useful to remember the point that Celine's made is that whilst it's true people don't change in front of you, they do change. And it is important also to remember that lots and lots of Jehovah's Witnesses do leave. It is the Pew Research Centre have done surveys around this sort of thing. And Jehovah's Witnesses come bottom of the table in terms of keeping people in. So whilst they're getting people through the front door, there's people leaving at the back door constantly. So there's a good chance that that person you're talking to within 10 years will have also left. So I think back to all the people I grew up with and the people in my congregation, and I reckon about half of those people have left, at least half. So Jehovah's Witnesses leave all the time. And often that's because they these doubts become too loud or they they get involved in something that they they shouldn't, they get disfellowshipped or something like that. Lots of them leave. So they're not, you know, you're not pushing at a, a locked door here. A lot of them actually want to leave, but don't quite know how. So yeah, I, I think um, just planting seeds and whatever you're interested in, you know. So for me, evolution was the big thing that was my worry when I was growing up. We didn't believe in evolution. Um, we believed the creation accounts in Genesis, Adam and Eve, um, animals according to their kinds, the flood, all of this was absolute truth. And I think most sensible people who are educated realize that these are stories. Sure, they might have some moral, interesting elements to them, but they're not scientific accounts. So that's what I generally start talking about. Or prophecies about the end times you know so i'm pretty direct and um i like to think that at some point something is just in their sort of in their brain um will remind them of that conversation i know it has for me i remember some of those conversations and some of the things that were said to me really that's interesting that's good to know okay good so thank you because uh, a lot of people will ask me though that question well i don't know if i should say anything or i don't want to i don't want to be angry i you know because they're they're sort of victims or they're just, they're well-meaning and, you know. Yeah. Could I emphasize that, Rachel? Sorry. Um, but I just wanted to, so, um, you know, like a lot of people, people get frustrated and fed up with um, witnesses calling at their door. And they also hear about some terrible things. You know, there's been child sex abuse um, that hasn't been dealt with very well and in various congregations. And that's partly because of the processes and policies of the organization, in my view. Um, and so people get very angry and I completely understand that. And as a, an ex-member who feels that, you know, a lot to be angry about, but it's not the fault of those Jehovah's Witnesses that knock on your door. You know, they are, um, they're struggling with their own difficulties. Some of them might believe it 100%. Many of them will have their own doubts. It's not their fault. You know, they are, they are genuine people, most of them. So yeah, that's just a sort of plea to me. So yeah, they are human beings. And the thing is, they've been told um, that the world is a wicked place. So if you can, I guess, sh- even if you don't plant any doubts, you don't say anything, if you just nice it's just against um you know a lot of people have said 
I think maybe everyone we've ever interviewed has always said, oh, and then I realised that people are actually quite nice, you know, because they've been told all this time that everyone's so horrible and nobody's as kind as the people that are in this community. You'll not find anyone kind and nice like this. So yeah, when people realise that, you know, people are nice, people are kind. So even if that all you do is just politely say, no, thank you, if that's all you've got in you, that that can be a lot. <laughs> right. It's reminding me, and then I do want to go back to what you brought up, Stephen, and I think the three of us can talk about that for a long, long time, but I know we have a limited amount of time, so I'll keep the story very short. But years ago, um, I was giving a talk about cults, and it used to be that the Scientologists, and still they do, you know, they would show up when I was talking and be there to harass. So uh, the talk was done. I went out to the parking lot. There was a guy there, maybe 16, 17, and it was his job. He was he was um, inputting um, the people's license plates number into his phone so that he could then get them, send them to Scientology. Scientology would then harass those people, track them down and harass them. And people are yelling at him and he's just ignoring them because he's been given this task and he thinks he's saving the world by doing this. And I yelled at him and uh, he yelled back and I said, no, you didn't hear what I said. I said, be careful. And he looked startled. He was so busy standing in a parking lot, looking at his phone that he almost got hit many times by people pulling out who just happened to notice him and were able to get around him as he's walking about. But he had his mission. And I thought, he's somebody's kid. Like, you know, and he's a human being and he's going to get hit by a car. And he he stopped for like it. It kind of snapped him out of this for a moment. And I wasn't trying to so be this do-gooder, but I thought, you know, what if he's my son? Would I want someone to say, would you, could you be careful? And yeah, I would want that. I would want that. Okay. So, um, right. So identity, who you are developing the self, you know, and I hope also at some point later on, maybe we can talk about what the work that you're doing as an organizational psychologist, because there's so much to learn about organizations and how they're run. And I'm sure it's of particular interest to you. Um, so maybe for another time, but let's talk about the self. So take it away, both of you and share your pearls with us about that. The tradition of psychology that I'm coming from is on the scientific side of, of psychology, if you like. And that way of thinking about the self and identity is is actually it's quite a difficult question. You know, the, the idea of self is itself <laughs> quite tricky to understand. You know, we we think about ourselves, we talk about ourselves as if it's another entity. And the person that's talking is somehow driving the bus and yet it's all the same thing and it and it's like what is that thing and it's wrapped in with consciousness and all of that it's very very it's a slippery concept it's hard to understand and i think when you leave a group um whether it's jehovah's witnesses scientology you know a myriad of other groups cults and so on one of the things that they do very I put well in inverted commas are very successful at doing is making your identity very much tied in with the organization itself. When you're recruited, that there's an active piece of work done there by the people recruiting you to try to align your identity with this new person, this, this new identity. But when you're raised 
in a group, then of course that's not you've not had a, a recruitment. You're you've not had a um, a process of trying to shift the way you think about yourself. It is who you are during the formation period that we all go through. When you leave, you then are left trying to make sense of who you are without this religious belief or other types of cults. It could be that, but it is mainly religion, I think, that this is particularly um, salient in. Um, and I, I do feel that even within, I suppose, the the cult recovery community, I feel that there's some narratives that are not always that helpful for for leavers who are born in. So one of the things that's often talked about is a sort of pseudo-identity or a pseudo-self. Um, and I understand that concept, especially if you've been been recruited. You've got something that you can say, well, this is my real me, the me that, was, that grew up and um, used to like doing this and used to do that, and I can go back to that. But if you're raised in it, it is you because it's it's all the things that went to make you obviously your genetic makeup but also the the environment you're raised in the way your parents raised you your friends your family your culture all of that is part of who you are and so when you leave it's quite a problematic place to be if you start saying well that wasn't the real you you've got now to invent a whole new self that's really really difficult so one of the things that i've been interested in and, and in my masters i did a, a very small qualitative study around how people use stories to connect their life as a Jehovah's Witness and who they were then and how that has, they've adapted that to to who they are now. It was one of my participants who was a, he was an elder, which meant he gave public talks and he gave talks from the platform, but he was very funny and everybody used to like listening to him because he was just a funny, engaging guy. And in his interview, he was talking about this and when he left, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, he became a stand-up comedian. And he tells this story because it helps him understand how his identity or his sense of self, there was something of him there and it's like a thread running through his life. And I just think that's really interesting. Um, and so that's an area that I'm, I think there's a lot more to learn about that, especially for people who are born into these to these groups. So I guess that's my main insight on identity. I want to learn more about how identity forms in normal situations, if you like, and how cults are different to what we might describe as a normal upbringing and how that affects people's formation of, of their sense of self. And I think that might be useful to then, that might help us to understand how to help people who have left after being raised in it for 30 years like I was. My goodness. Right. Uh, yeah. So that is something we could continue talking about, certainly, but it is a very powerful thing. And it is good to to highlight how some of the ways of addressing people who got into groups later on have something akin to what you've experienced, but it's not exactly the same. So I, I think it is good to make that distinction. And I think second generation, third generation, fourth generation people are trying to make their mm, challenges clearer to the public. So I think this really does help in terms of identity. And I'm just wondering, as we're finishing, Celine, you know, my my experience of, of forming an identity 
has been, and maybe it's been similar to yours because you've had the benefit of doing it in a certain way that your father had to do and had to create later on, that there is a core and then they're also sort of changing parts of you, you know, that you identify with certain people and become like them or try that on for size. And, you know, so there, there is this part of you where you think, okay, that is, that is who I am. It's like a spine, you know, but the other things might change until you form who you are really then. But I think identity shifts in certain ways. But what remains the same, I think, let me know if you agree, is let's say your conscience, like the fact that you care about other people's feelings and doing the right thing, no matter if you're trying on wearing a certain thing, liking a certain thing, that that remains the same. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. I think there is, um, yeah, just certain ways that you behave or just isms that are Selene-isms, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so there's like things like that. But I suppose um, in terms of my identity, I feel like I kind of have a privilege to not think about it very much because like Dad said, he's had to go through a process of thinking what's me and what's sort of imposed on me. Or um, as I think was mentioned uh, in one of our podcasts, the interjects um, things are like working out what's been sort of yeah, what was something that was taught to you that maybe you do happen to still believe because you would have anyway? Um, and what do you um, want to mull over and think? Do I, oh, no, I don't believe that actually. Like I think you said before with people that are, you've said this, uh, people that are like in relationships with people that have been ex-Jehovah's Witnesses and they've said, well, they react like this to this and I don't understand why. And maybe yeah, it's because of, you know, particular JW upbringing. Maybe you re- reflect on it and you would have thought that anyway. But I suppose, yeah, I feel quite privileged and that I feel quite relaxed about who I am. And and um, that's something that, yeah, if you're raised in a cult, you, you don't necessarily have the privilege of just being like, oh, yeah, that's just me. That's just what I'm like. You think, oh, what would I have just been like that? Could I have been, would I have been different? So I suppose that's, that's kind of what, what I think about. <laughs> I love it. It's such a lovely insight to kind of have, to be gifted with, the luxury of not having to worry about it and think about it. Okay. So thank you so much to both of you. And I I love what you, you are doing with each other and what you've created and being a resource and giving other people an opportunity to come on and talk and share. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to continuing. Thank you so much for for having us on, Rachel. We've really enjoyed being on, on your show. It's great. Thank you very much. Good. Thank you so much. One more thing before you go. lot from this conversation with Celine and Stephen. It's very special, as I mentioned in the intro, for me to have a parent-child duo, especially talking about this issue. There are so many people I work with who no longer have a relationship with their children. So many people I talk to who no longer have a relationship with their parents, and they wish they could sit down with them and have any kind of conversation. 
when you get to hear from a parent and a child, you get to hear things from their different perspectives. And I was not surprised to hear that Celine had pretty good memories of her time in the group. She was young. She was treated nicely. She was given a lot of very healthy attention and positives, smiles, hugs. And so from her perspective, she was actually also able to be spared what Stephen really wanted to spare her from, which was her getting older and having to live with the constraints that were going to be placed on her and how she was going to be made to feel about herself as a woman in this world and how much she was going to be judged and how unfair everything would be kind of stacked against her. He saw it happen to other people, and he didn't want it to happen to her. Some of you may have heard me talk about this in the past, and I know I mentioned it a bit when we were all talking together, but there are a number of people who said, listen, I stayed in my cultic group for way too long, but I didn't realize how bad it was because I thought I deserved to be treated that way. Either I was raised in an environment where I was made to feel deserving of mistreatment or the cult itself made me feel like it was somehow good for me and good for my soul to be mistreated, to be kind of made to feel judged all the time, to be held up to a standard of perfection and to have to also hide who I really was inside. And I put up with that for years and years. But this is the twist. Some of those same people said to me, it wasn't until I had kids or it wasn't until my younger siblings were being treated a certain way. It wasn't until I started getting to be old enough to notice what life was really like for other people. And it wasn't until I was made to mistreat other people, to tell on them, to report on them, and then they would get punished. They would get hurt. And that would be because I thought I was helping them. I thought I was helping them stay on a good path by telling on them when I saw them doing something that wasn't part of the rules. And so sometimes having younger siblings, sometimes having children becomes your saving grace. And it's good to look at how much you're willing to tolerate happening to you. Because again, it's been taught to you that that's the way that mm, God is going to be happier with you. But suddenly it doesn't feel so right when it's happening to someone who is younger, who's more vulnerable, who's innocent. And also, if it's a younger sibling or if it's a child of yours, this is someone who you're supposed to be protecting. That's part of your job. And so there are a lot of people who have said, I needed that as a catalyst. That was my motivator to get out. Stephen is no different. And it's wonderful to see that at some point he needed to start planning his exit. And in the meantime, Celine was still kind of being a little girl and enjoying herself, and that's just perfectly fine. But I'm sure as they work together, and I bet it's fun for them to have a podcast together, that the more stories they hear, 
about what happened in that group to people growing up in it. And the more stories they hear in general about cults, the more they know how lucky they are. And this is not to compare stories, but it's just going to hit home when people tell you about the life that they had. Stephen and I will hopefully be speaking again and talking more about his experience. But in the meantime, it's wonderful that he got to free himself and free his daughter, knowing also that the transition was going to be a lot harder for him. And it's always going to be, to a certain degree, still a work in progress. And so when people will say to me, listen, I got out and my family wanted to throw me a party because they were already out. And I thought, oh, not yet. I'm not feeling like partying quite yet. I'm still not sure how to reconcile where God is in my life if I want to have a relationship with God. If I did the wrong thing somehow, I I just am not so sure. Not 100% yet. People can be in that space for a long time still have things that they need to work on, still have things they need to clarify. But the thing that's going to be very clear is that Celine has had a chance to have a life that she couldn't have had if she had stayed and if they had stayed. I'm glad you got to hear them. And I hope for all of you out there who are in situations with your children where you're needing to evaluate if this is safe, if this is right, that you can hear their story and feel empowered by it. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.